Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Curious Competitor Podcast. I'm your host today, NHL Defense, but for somebody, uh, come July 28th. Uh, my guest today is Cody Royal. Cody uh, is an author and a football coach. He spent the last six years as the head coach of the AFL Team Canada, the men's national program for Australian rules football. Cody is a standout voice in how leadership propels teams to sustain success. His first book, where others won't propose that businesses should look at how pro sports teams focus on team dynamics and talent optimization in order to innovate. The book included in-depth interviews with the likes of Detroit Pistons legend Joe Dumars, former Phoenix Suns head coach Igor, stay with me, Kokoskov. I should be better with that uh, given my uh, fellow Russian friends in hockey and Buffalo Sabres head coach Ralph Kruger and Canadians uh, WNT soccer player Ashley Lawrence. In February of 2021, Cody's second book was released titled The Tough Stuff. Uh, cap tip to him for releasing a book uh, as a pandemic was was ready to rock. Uh, in it, well, I guess that would be that would be full blow, 2021, not 2020. In it, he explores the challenges of head coaching uh, in elite sports with renowned figures like Dan Quinn from the Atlanta Falcons, Ben Olsen from DC United, Carly Clark from Ryerson WBB, Stuart Lancaster, hope I'm saying that right, uh, from England Rugby and former Raptors head coach Jay Triano, all lending their personal stories. It has become a number one Amazon bestseller in Canada and Australia. Since the success of the tough stuff, Cody has launched into coaching other head coaches in elite sports, uh, recognizing a gap in the market, now mentors over a dozen coaches in half a dozen different sports from around the world. Very excited to introduce our guest today, Cody Royal. All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, as promised, we're live. Uh, our guest today, Cody Royal, is on the other side of the screen. Uh, this, I think, I don't know, we're going to try and go after some some walls. I think that we were joking before we went live here that, uh, this isn't live recorded, but besides the point, this is a, you know, pro athlete uh, and pro coach conversation where I'll never play for you and you'll likely never have to coach me given the, the difference uh, of sport. We're introduced by... Um, uh, Meg Popovic originally, who's the director of mental performance and, and wellness for the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, who I had a relationship with there. I think it was either her first or second year there uh, when we worked together. And she had a bit of a smaller role, and now I think she's a little bit more embraced um, up there. And again, you know, Toronto Maple Leafs more of a forward-thinking organization. So I think that's a, a good foot to lead off on in terms of how we've met. <laughs> I don't know. I, I the the first question I have here is, you know, what do coaches brutally wish that all of their athletes would integrate? Because and there there was one player in particular I played with, for example, um, in the minor leagues, and I thought our coaches, in my humble opinion, was were doing him a disservice. So this player was a a big, lengthy defender, fantastic wind, he could skate all day. Um, really elite defender, but he had this hunger to influence the game offensively with a lack of the skill set. He just, he was not very good offensively. Tons of shots blocked. He just didn't have the knack uh, for a vision and things like that. And I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I don't know what the relationship is with the coaches here, but the fact that someone's not grabbing this kid by the shoulders and saying, please simplify offensively and just defend. And you'll be a top four, you know, $4 million a year guy for the rest of your career. Um, mm -hmm. and I won't name them, but you know, the players particularly still in the minors. And, and so I, it, it really begged the question to me. I'm like, holy shit, is there something I'm doing in my career that where I'm the idiot and, and, and no coach has, sh has sh shook me to wake me up because I'd want that. Right. Um, or I think I'd want it. I definitely don't not want it. Um, I don't know. What, what's that make you feel? Uh, I'm kind of smiling along as you're describing this because I've I've seen this happen as a player myself. It was very similar to to my circumstance, you know. In uh, my background is Aussie Rules Football or AFL, um, which you know people in North America might have seen on ESPN or, or TSN up here in Canada. A bit of a crazy sport, and I, I think a lot of coaches had this idea. It is a crazy sport. It is a crazy sport. You guys are nails. Uh, 
<laughs> I think a lot of coaches have this idea that coaching happens by osmosis and it just whatever they're thinking comes across to the players. So, you know, when when you yell at someone that your passion for fixing that problem immediately comes across to the the player or the fact that you've been sat on the end of the bench, you know, all of the ideas that have gone through your head about why you're doing that to the player have just somehow, you know, telepathically ended up in the player's brain as well. So, you know, I think that's a, it's a huge problem. And it's funny because, you know, coaching is still quite idle despite this professionalization of all the sports that, that we're talking about, hockey, Aussie rules, soccer, you know, all the, all the major sports. There's still no real definition around what makes a coach. There's st- still no real structured way to kind of learn to be one. Um, there's not a lot of agreeance on really any of the frameworks around coaching and what's effective coaching and, you know, the type of person that should get into coaching. What we still do to this day is slam a former player in there and be like, you were good on the PK. So why don't you, you can teach them how to do that. And we just see this, this, you know, wheel just keep turning based on that. And don't get me wrong. There's a lot of former players that are ace coaches that have some, some amazing stuff, but it's not to the level of the sports that we're still seeing. There's, there's probably guys hanging around in the minors or, and you've probably seen some of them in, at all levels that you've come up through, you know, junior and everything. We're like, this guy, like this guy should be running his own, his own pro team, but he's stuck at, you know, under 18 level. You know, those guys can't yeah. push up because we just keep slamming former players into the roles. Well, I think what's cool about your development personally, and I understand this is still recent, um, so we can get into it as much as you want in terms of being mm-hmm. a consultant, you know, to other coaches. I think that's the natural next progression you know, feedback is, is honest feedback is, is such a tool. Uh, creative feedback is such a tool, for example, for players. And, I, you know, one of the things I, I think back over the development of the sport from a bird's eye view, you know, there was a time there, you watch old school hockey. And the first thing that comes to mind is like, what are these goaltenders doing? Like, what, what are <laughs> these? They look like basement shinny goalies. And that's no disrespect that, you know, them, they were doing the best they could. Compared to the goalie of, of today, um, you know, I would argue it's maybe the most progressively grown uh, or advanced position in, in sport, you know, off the top of my mind. And that a lot came from goaltenders having their own consultants, right? And then I remember, I forget what year it was. I should have wrote it down. Jamie Benn won the scoring title in the National Hockey League with less than a point per game which is bananas because now we've got, you know, Connor McDavid's tipping the scales at a hundred plus in 56 games. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think players got sick and tired of getting shut out by these gold, these goalies who had, you know, their gurus and their new training styles. They got pissed off at these goalies. And now every player and their cousin has, uh, their own personal consultant, right? Like I use, you know, video consultants, skill consultants outside the team out of my own paycheck. Right. And I, like any business, I'm CEO of Connor Carrick Hockey Enterprises or whatever you want to name it. It's my job to make sure this you know machine keeps going and invests and, and gets bigger. And, um, you know, so I gladly do it. While on the other hand, it's frustrating in terms of the gap sometimes between the individualized coaching you get on a team level uh, versus what's available, you know, on your own dime outside the game. So it's interesting. I think... I don't know if, if like, if you were the CEO of Google, would you do it on your own? If you're the CEO of Apple, would you do it on your own or would you have a team in place? And I have to imagine they have systems in place. And I think that's starting to enter the coaching world. Would you agree? hundred percent. Yeah. There's two things to what you're talking about there. There's the structural part of coaching internally. So you know, the answer for the longest time through, you know, the professionalism of sport was just add another assistant coach, right? We'll just add another assistant coach. And my sport is the worst for this where it got to the point where there was like 14 assistant coaches. And and you kind of <laughs> walk in there and I'm like, well, 
what's the what's the thirteenth guy doing? Like, how is he developing players? And and it was, you know, we could get into the theory, but it's it's essentially this kind of business idea of like more more man hours and more capacity leads to better outcomes. If we just chuck money at it and chuck resources at it, it will get better. And to a certain extent, that's true. But to your point, that really finite, like squeezing that last little percentage point out of a hockey player, you know, a six foot seven defenseman, um, you know, that takes real tender care. And that's not just having someone around. So there's, there's structural stuff that I think we, we definitely need to address and just adding more assistance isn't better. And then, yeah, man, like I spent the last year, uh, I just finished my second book. Uh, it's called The Tough Stuff and it's about head coaching, uh, specifically, you know, the emotional toll and the human experience of what head coaches go through. And, you know, there's a real reality there that the game the game in inverted commas has gotten so big so quickly that they essentially don't get to really coach anymore. And they're busy managing the sports science department, the psychology department, the analytics department, the medical department, the, the assistant coaches who are all tied to them. Then you've got, you know, you you care about your players and then you care about, you know, you've just had a kid so I care about your wife and your kid and I've got 50 players under me. So there's 150 people that I really care about there. It's a um, lot of people to th- maintain relations right? And with. so to your point is it starts to look like a bit of a CEO of a company where there's this some big, you know, weight that comes along with all of those responsibilities. And, you know, even, even the most arrogant coach who shows no empathy and no emotional intelligence underneath they do care about things they do care about what people think of them and it does have an emotional response um and so yeah uh, to what you're talking about that this next wave is going to be i'm a head coach but i need my own coach i need someone who can sit with me and help me navigate this world and, and all the different things that I need to, uh, to deal with. And, you know, the, the best already have it, you know, everyone wants to copy Pep Guardiola at Man City. He's got a coach full time on his staff that his job is just to deal with Pep. Eddie Jones, who's the England rugby coach. He has a, a guy from my sport you know, names, Neil Craig used to be a head coach in the AFL the biggest sport in Australia. Now his job is to be Eddie Jones's coach. Uh, and that's his only mm-hmm. responsibility. Right. And so the, the top guys have started to go and it'll, it will filter down where you'll start to see everyone else realize if, if paying someone 200 grand to, for them to help the coach, to make the coach more optimized and be able to coach better, <laughs> which is the job, then that's a worthwhile investment versus, again, the, the alternative that we had at the start was a couple of new assistant coaches. Yeah, it's, um, I have thought about that. You know, I, I remember there was a particular period of my career where I was like, you know, I was playing the, you know, why isn't the coach talking to me card, you know? Um, ha, ha, ha. And every player we're all star players growing up, right? There's a certain level of, of accolade and attention we're normally used to, right? So all of a sudden, uh, yeah. you're a little lower on the totem pole. Every young player goes through this, and, and I'm at the point in my career now where I've got to see that, and, and as an older player, wrap my around, arm around him and be like, hey, I get it. I've been there. Um, and then I remember thinking, like, our coaches are human. They do have their own families and kids with with in infinitely busy lives, you know, we're all, no one's looking to become more busy. Um, they've got, you know, a full staff. And I remember thinking, I was pretty critical of the coach at the time and thinking, you know, maybe it's a tough job. Maybe it's actually really, really is a tough job and actually having some, some empathy. So like at the highest level, what, what is the experience of being a coach when it's going good? Um, versus going poorly, 
And what is the relationship with your players on both sides of the fence? And of course, it's a lot more gray all in between there, right? Like I'm sure you've been a coach on a team where the team's winning, but they're playing like garbage <laughs> and the team's losing, but playing really well. So there's a little bit of a yin and yang, which is, you know, brings us full circle to why coaching such an art. Um, but where do you start with that? What, what is head coaching? How, how do you manage? Well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, cause I, you hit on something there. Have you ever had a coach explain like what they're trying to do, like what coaching is to you? Like, here's, you know, here's how I think about coaching. Is that what you guys think about it? Or here's how I'm going to coach or here's what I'm going through. Have you ever had anyone actually have that upfront conversation, you know, with the group? Not necessarily. I would say that the last Real breakthrough conversation I'd had. I, I we were talking about him prior to, um, you know, Sheldon Keefe with the Leafs, for example. Uh, you know, hockey mm. has its X's and O's, but it's a very flowy sport. Uh, so X's and O's break down certain ways. And he was one of the first people I'd ever, first coaches I'd ever had where I actually understood from an entire, I'd no longer thought of the game as like D zone, neutral zone, offensive zone like we have the puck they have the puck power play penalty kill it all started to blend and it looked like one game so for example the way we played in d zone was particularly set up to help us enter the neutral zone in a particular way which allowed us to get to the offensive zone and then we would practice for example um he used to say this thing uh we want to get to the o zone and we want to change in the offensive zone and 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 he goes because Defenders, for example, when fresh, when there's five defenders that are fresh, playing offense is really hard. When there's less of them or they're tired, offense has the advantage. And so he introduced this concept of like how to change in the ozone and we would practice it. And there was this full blend of like uh, culture. Players had to buy in to because it's hard to get to the offensive zone to, to personally change so that the next guy can have a better opportunity, right? And we can all eat off this gravy train. If, if we get it going in the right direction, um, we had that. And it was one of the first times where I'd like practice a detail that led to such serious implications in the game. No one practiced line changes. It's pretty simple in hockey. You played so you're tired and when you're tired, get off. And that wasn't the rule there. Um, but as far as like on the, on the personal side, I have again on, on some of the outside consultations again, when I'm paying for someone's time, and now they have, because of the value exchange, they have to prove their worth to me to a particular number that we've agreed to that, you know, I've paid them. Um, well, they'll explain like bit by bit, this is how you build a good game, detail by detail. Like if you're Connor, you're able to execute this pass. Now you don't have to defend, but because you have to defend and you have to defend every shift, like let's watch the, the gaps increase. You, you can tell you get more tired in the game. You start to, so anyway, um, the answer is no. Yeah. That is pretty widespread, I'd say. And, and that's kind of what I'm yeah. getting at is, you know, even, you know, when you start dating someone new, you, you kind of, you might not necessarily have a prenup, but you, you, you would have a conversation about how this is going to work, right? And if, yeah, if, yeah, if, you, if you're dealing with a one-on-one -on -one coach, and I think that's really a, an interesting starting point for team coaches, is great. So you've signed this contract, you've passed all the interviews with the GM and the owners and everything, but you still got to prove and you still got to discuss what coaching is and how you think about it to the people that you're about to impart that on. And so, you know, there's, that's a, that's a really interesting starting point for a modern coach, because to your point, mm -hmm. you know, guys like Sheldon, you can tell by the way his teams play that he understands the game and, and is positioning it to them in a way that it's more principle-based. It's not like do just do this one, two, and three thing. You know, we've got principles that allow us to unlock more principles in different areas and blah, 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 blah. So there's, there's like great coaching hidden in all these little pockets, and we need to try to get that to the point where it's just great coaching. And, you know, everyone kind of understands because that's ultimately what every coach is trying to get to and is frustrated by. I need everyone to understand this because, you know, if my 23rd guy doesn't quite get it, 
that costs me a Stanley Cup. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's the kind of frustration. But to answer your, your actual first question, you know, what is it really like is that, you know, I think the reason that I wrote a book about the emotional toll taken on these people is because we, we, what's positioned to us on television um, and what people generally know about coaching is all true. You know, you've got to do the media, you've got to do the sponsor event, you've got to do all that sort of stuff. But what we don't talk about is the impact on them and their ability to solve problems and their ability to, yeah, just navigate life and their job insecurity. So, I, you know, some of the best stories I've heard since writing this book have been how much someone's coaching improved when they signed a new contract because just like a player, they have a mortgage, right? So no one wants to talk about that. They've got responsibilities. They've got all these different things. Uh, going on in their lives. They've got trauma that they've brought to the stadium. They've, they've got relationship dynamics with power, just like players and coaches have to navigate. Um, so there's all these kind of facets around, you know, emotion and psychology and decision-making and performance that we know about from the players and we would spend millions and millions of dollars trying to remove for the players and we spend zero for the coaches and we just say, yeah, but we're paying you enough money. So you go and deal with yeah. that. And that's what I'm saying needs to change is we have all the performance insights. We spend millions of it. Our job is human performance. <laughs> but then we're saying really the is, person yeah. that makes the ultimate decision, we're giving you no help in, in to, to make those better decisions. And I'm not saying everyone needs a coach. I'm not saying everyone needs a psychologist. I'm not saying every coach needs a, a clinical psychologist that they go and talk about their childhood trauma. What I'm saying is we need to at least start having the conversations about how, how can we get the coach to make better game time decisions and deliver their game plan in a more succinct way and, yeah, have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with the players. That's what we need to get to. So to – Take it from, you know, the more abstract and theoretical to something more concrete. Because I've seen it. Like, I've, I've been on a team and on a bench where it's like a good business deal versus a bad business deal. Like, you know, you want to play in the world of win-win. You want the coach to be able to press on the players, get a great response. The player gets the benefit from the better play. The coach, you know, hey, uh, John Hines used to have a saying like this, uh, and I loved it, where he's like, you know, be a player that that can tolerate being coached hard, like want to get coached hard, the best want to get coached hard. I, I connected with that. I was like, yeah, I, I do. I want to be a guy that, you know, I don't want to be on the other side of my career and, and think that they're my, you know, my best hockey might not have been played. Um, mm -hmm. And I know the coach generally has, you know, my best interest at heart. They, they want me to score goals. They want me to be a good defender and things like that. But on the other hand, I've seen it in sport where you can feel it. Uh, the team's starting to lose. There were expectations. There was whispers in the media. Every meeting just seems like a progressive melt, right? Um, and players are, at this point, numb. It's like, you know, you got the megaphone out yesterday. You got the megaphone out today. You're going to have it out tomorrow. You know, after yep. 50 lashes, the 51st doesn't hurt so bad anymore. Um, and at this point, you can smell it. It's, it's a... Coach, this, this is starting to sound more like a you problem than a me problem. Um, what's it like when the seat's hot? Like what, what would be a case in your career uh, where you felt ill-equipped, where you felt, you know, the, the monotony of the schedule or the, the momentum of the year got to you? Yeah, well, I mean, the seat's always hot. So that's part of it is it, it, it doesn't, not get hot and that's part of the reason that you see the behavior you know there's this a uh, great quote um i think it's charlie munger and it's you know show me the incentive and i'll i'll show you the behavior and what it means is you know even though we've pitched ourselves as this great organization that you know we've got 
long-term goals and we're going to build a long-term sustainable culture, but then you act like, you know, if, if we lose two games in a row, we're going to fire the coach, then that's, that's the incentive and that incentive is driving the behavior from the coach. Like this is just general human behavior. We, yeah, we find people for speeding. We find people for speeding on the road because then they won't speed on the road. Like it's, this isn't <laughs> anything that, uh, that we don't know already. And so, again, I, I think that then um, translates to how players interact, uh, sorry, coaches interact with their players and, and, and they just, again, human behavior becomes, well, I'm going to protect myself, right? So everyone's coming for me. Um, I'm getting heat in the media. Uh, now everyone on social media is, is telling me that I'm a bad person, apparently, uh, because we lost a couple of games. Um, and and it's, it eats away at you. It makes you snappy. It makes you not think through problems correctly. So, yeah. you know, I, I can give you two examples, right? Like while I was writing my book, two of the, the key interviews were Ben Olsen, who was at DC United in Major League Soccer, the head coach for about 10 years, and uh, Dan Quinn, who's a now former head coach of the Atlanta Falcons um, and was the coach when, you know, they lost that Super Bowl to the Patriots. They both got fired whilst I wrote my book. I'd already interviewed them. And then they, they both got fired. So they were both on the hot seat. And it was excruciating to watch them go through what they were going through because it was from all angles. It was call from the owner. It was you know, call from the media. It was um, you know, people that used to be allies would abandon them because the team was losing. Um, and so, you know, it, it's... Excruciating is probably the right word, actually. It's excruciating to go through because you know how many people you're letting down when the team's not going well. And you know how many promises you made to ownership that you could get it back on track and, and you just can't quite turn the needle in what's ultimately a huge guessing game anyway. Because, you know and you know this, we can draft number one, number two, number three for as long as we want. It doesn't make us a good team. And, you know, that we're all flipping the coin so often that it's all a big guess, ultimately. <laughs> and it sucks when you don't get the yeah, guess it's, right. Um, it's it. So, so one of the... I, I think happiness is like a, a, a cheap word. I think it's fleeting. You know, joy's got more texture to it. Mm -hmm. um, but underneath all of that, I think is, is usually fulfillment or safety. You know, those mm -hmm. are, those are two big drivers, for example, in my own life. So like one of the things I, I, I kept looking around at in uh, my locker room, you know, as a, as a young D man was like, okay, I can do the marginal gains thing. I can go to the gym and try and get 1% stronger and 1% faster and 1% this and 1% that. Or I can pursue what I would consider like a, a genuine breakthrough. Like what's really missing between me and the best version of me? Well, well, some poise, kid. Um, you know, some experience, some uh, pass the puck to their team, watch them bury it in your own net and go, eh. It, and it sounds unfathomable as a young you know, rookie who, who really wants to perform well. And, you know, particularly like, you know, I, I played in Toronto's market, for example, it was hot. Um, mm -hmm. But not for uh, Ron Hainsey, who I'd played with and had 20 years experience in the league. And so eventually I just got to a point where it was like, you know what? I don't think anyone's going to make me feel safe. And the way this is going to go is maybe in 50 games, maybe in a hundred games, maybe in 200 games, I'll, feel safer out there, more calm, more poised, be able to see better. Um, but the person, the player that's going to be able to do that is still just me. So why don't I become that today? Like, why don't I do that tonight? And of course mm -hmm. I'd fail sometimes and, you know, get flighty or make a mistake. And, and that's, you know, mental toughness, right? Like how close are you performing consistently to your ceiling, regardless of circumstance, regardless of what coach says what the crowd says, you know, that kind of thing. 
So it's like, how, how do we make, you're not going to get security from the owner. He's not going to gift it to you. Hey, Cody, I don't care how you play, how, how, how the team does this year. You're my guy, right? Contract or not, right? Like they can change their mind at any time. Um, it's likely not even to come from your assistant coaches who part of them probably want your job by definition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to come from your players. Like there's not going to be a line of 23 guys outside Cody Royal's room to say, Hey coach, we love you to pieces. Like, don't worry about it. Um, so what, what, what is the good model? Like how, how is, how can we improve in such a results driven world? How can we become behavior focused? How can we become process focused? How can we engineer safety as an inside job? Is that, is that even possible? Or am I talking crazy talk? It is possible. The way to do it is to expectation set better. You know, I think part of the problem and, and part of what's driving a lot of this, you know, again, we're talking about incentives is, you know, every coach comes in and says, well, I'm going to win the cup, you know, in two or three years. And so you overpromise, and, you know, uh, and then, that then just gets used against you straight away as soon as you start to lose. And I think better reality of where we're at is part of the problem. Everyone thinks they're one, you know, one player away from a cup run, and that's just not true. And so I think that's, that's part of the conversation. Um, and to, to look at what a good model looks like, I'll use the AFL as an example. So, you know, at the moment, there's a couple of coaches that are on the hot seat. One's been in his role for 10 years, hasn't won the championship, and is about to be re-signed. And so 10 years is a long time. You've had essentially two cycles, right, to have your own players in, um, you know, re-enter the window, go again. uh, and then on the flip side of that is the, the team that is now dominant. Again, they re-upped. They were about to fire their coach. They re-upped on him, gave him one more chance. They've won three of the last four premierships. So, wow. you know, part of it is, is bailing out at people at the wrong time. And, and so this is what I mean about expectations. Like if, we're, if we think we're moving in the right direction, is the next coach going to be that much better that they're going to get us over the hump to a title or to wherever we want to go? Or is actually sticking fat with the original plan an option here? Because there are going to be waves, there are going to be ups and downs, and we're okay to navigate those. And so, you know, I think it's expectations. I think we need to do a better job of not over-promising and actually having realistic conversations about where we're at. This team's not very good. It's going to take a long time to get this team up to standard, but I'm willing to take that on. I'm the right person to take that on if you'll give me the time. That's a better conversation to have than a, you know, I, I think we're close. <laughs> yeah, you you got you got you know coach, GM, and owner all leaving the room having heard something they wanted to hear while recognizing it's you know probably a farce truth. Um, because there's two examples that I remember of, and of course I'm only in the locker rooms I'm in. I'm not in every room around the league, but I remember I had a couple friends uh, with the Washington Capitals, and uh, when Barry Trotz had come in, who's a coach that I'd had, you know, I wish I'd played for him more. I, I really was impressed with the level of detail, uh, you know, super professional, um, you know, good communicator, clear, took great, went to great lengths to make sure that he communicated with his, his entire lineup. I can only imagine, you know, how much respect, the, you know, the stars had for him, for example, you know, the Ovechkins and the Backstroms and kind of a cool mm-hmm. coach in terms of he, you know, the, the, the knock, I guess, was he was always a Nashville super defensive coach. Uh, tight checking teams, great structure, you know, never won there, but never really had the, 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 again, the expectation where, you know, the, the heavy, heavy favorite. So he was able to last there a long time, cool experience of like uh, building up a, a startup franchise. So he, he, you know, really had a whole sort of 
a whole gamut of, of experience in the game and then came to Washington, hyper-skilled team, two years in a row. Uh, I think it was like they, they, they would, would be considered like a four-year window. I think it was a four-year deal he had signed. I can't remember. It might have been five. But there was particularly two years where like this team was loaded. Like they were they were making trades at the trade deadline just to make sure their rivals didn't end up having the players they wanted. Like they didn't even need them. They were just trying to steal from the market so no one else got them. Like they had just an embarrassment of riches. Uh, we actually had played them in the first round uh, in Toronto and, and lost in six to them. Uh, one of the years. Great, you know, super fun series. Um, but they, they did not win. And I remember it was the fourth year. It was the last, it was his expiring contract. Uh, and I had a couple friends on the team and I remember talking to him, you know, how are things there? Um, and again, with the, the weird expectations, they kind of like sleepily led themselves to like a hundred point season or just under it. Like they were still tops in the league and everyone was talking about like, Oh, Washington doesn't have it this year. It's the worst team they've had in, you know, two or three years. And I remember there was this like thing on YouTube or on YouTube, on uh, you know, NHL Network, whatever was going around. I remember the whole team was banging their sticks. They were in the playoffs, and this was after I talked to my you know a friend on the team, and he'd said he's like, man, I think I think Trotz is gone. I think we're going to fire him. He's in the last year of their deal. I, I think you know the writing's kind of on the wall of who they are looking to hire, uh, which was an assistant coach on their bench who did eventually become the head coach. And I remember this like video of Barry Trotz doing these like hot laps around the rink. And the, all the boys are cheering him on. And, and you know, Barry's an older guy. Like, I, 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 don't, I can't imagine he's, like, out there, you know, sprinting all the time and, and preparing for this. I'm sure he was, you know, a little sore the next day. And I remember seeing this lightness in, in the face of what could feel or seem very serious, right? And maybe Barry's been around a long time, and maybe he didn't need the money, and maybe, you know, he had faith in his process and all that. Um, but you know it was still bugging him that he, he hadn't won the big one you know he'd right. still wanted the opportunity to get the next opportunity, whatever that looked like. Um, and then John Cooper, I think in um, Tampa Bay, similar where they had, you know, a uh, historic season beyond dominant. And, you know, to get, I think they got swept. I think it was four straight against Columbus, you know, a team that very much played, I don't want to say the opposite, but a, a very, rugged, you know, core style of hockey to Tampa, you know, was extremely skilled and, and that kind of thing. And they stuck with them and eventually won. So, and both guys kind of had this, this poise in the fire, you know, where the, the water was getting hot, you know, and they and for whatever reason, it didn't seem to show on their face. I'm, I'm sure it did at times, but it was one of the cool insights where I was like, huh, I wonder what's under the hood over there. I I wonder what personally their makeup is, what their process is to to sort through this because it's it it could seem heavy. Yeah, exactly. And I I'd throw Bruce Arians into that mix as well, where you know so has come out looking like this you know uber um, you know forward thinking coach that is loved by all the players and all that sort of stuff. But mm -hmm. there's also examples of. You know, along his development, I think it was there was a game maybe five years ago where Seattle played Arizona and both of the kickers missed clutch field goals at the end that would have ended it. And then so you have this scenario at the press conference where Pete Carroll gets up and he's like, we love our kicker. You know, he's going to he'll be back. You know, we love him. He's with us. No, no worries. We might have lost the game, but. You know, it's fine. He's one of he's one of our boys. So the, the the super, you know, inclusive team guy that Pete Carroll is that we know and we see every week. But then Arians trots out at the other end and he's like, our guy's got to do better. You know, he, he, he won't be here long kind of thing. You know, same press conference. Both kickers had missed. And so you also see that development in coaches as well, where now Arians has ended up as this, Oh my God, all the, all the guys love him. He's so, you know, he's got all, all these huh. women on his staff. He's, you know, the, the central figure of all this sort of stuff. But he's developed as well as he's gone along and, and learned stuff and lost in playoffs and not been happy with his response at a press conference and all that sort of stuff. So I think we forget that too is that there's really nothing that prepares you for head coaching, certainly not assistant coaching. Assistant coaches got no idea what they're in for. Um, when, when they get the top job. Uh, and so, yeah, 
part of that is the, the coaching development that you have to go through when you're in the spotlight, when you're in the big seat. And again, it's, it's kind of like being a CEO. There's nothing that you can do ever to prepare you mm. to be a oh, CEO man. other than being a CEO. So when you look back over the course of, of your career or even in, in mentors you've had, you mentioned at the beginning of the, of, uh, the podcast where w- generally we haven't even asked what high-end coaching is. We haven't even set a North star expectations around, you know, what the coach's job is, what the communication flow should be, you know, what, how often are we going to be really looking at our systems in place, our X's and O's. When you look back, you know, for as long as you've been in coaching and even back as a player, what would be an example where, you know, you were really proud to be a part of something or you're really proud of, uh, particularly the way, you know, your players had come, you know, through as a, as a group. Um, or just stories that from, you know, the different people you've been able to be lucky enough to interview in that. Mm. Yeah, I'm in a bit of a unique scenario in that I coach the men's national team for Aussie rules football in Canada. So most people in this country don't even know what that is. And then uh, even less people know where to find where they can play. So, um, but, you know, we, we attract former, you know, U sports and NCAA athletes that, you know, they've played hockey or basketball or rugby or soccer at a, at a pretty high level and then really have no avenue to do much after university because uh, unlike in Australia, you know, we have a big local sporting community where you go back and you play for your suburb and there's money involved and you're almost like a professional, a semi-professional athlete that, you know, goes to the pub on Friday and uh, th- Friday so night before cool, a game. Yeah. And so, you know, I wanted to work with the, the high end guys because I, I think as a coach, I can make them better once they have a baseline of skill. And so the best people for me to get were those, those former athletes. But where I've been most happy with what we've done has been around the culture stuff. I think it's, it's fascinating to bring together literally athletes from, um, you know, Halifax to Victoria Island in Vancouver and everywhere in between Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto, and you give them an opportunity to represent their country at a sport that they probably didn't know about 10 years ago. And, you know, so they get to wear a maple leaf on their chest, which if you're a Canadian is the, the greatest thing that can happen to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I was really interested in, playing on that a lot as their head coach, the pride that comes with a nation and particularly Canada. Uh, We have a similar level of pride in Australia. You know, people get the Southern Cross or a kangaroo tattooed on their body. And so it means something to these people to to get to represent um, their country. But then the best thing that we ever did was in 2017, we had the International Cup, so about 25, 30 countries all send their teams down to Australia. There's like a three-week tournament. You know, it's like a mini World Cup or Olympics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had a, a lock-in session and it was a vulnerability session. And so the reason that we did it, it wasn't on the agenda. They didn't know they were doing it. They thought they were going into their jersey presentation and, you know, everyone was going to clap and we are going to have a couple of beers and it was all going to be... Uh, you know, <laughs> an easy, easy evening. But really what I sensed as the coach was that they knew each other, but they weren't, they didn't have that kind of brotherhood. And I'm sure, Connor, like you've been on teams where you, you, it's not calling yourselves brothers, but there is this bond that happens between the group of players. And it might be fleeting even, but it is so strengthening from a, a, a dynamics and a team cohesion perspective, but it's kind of hard to explain exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to get us to that point. And so, you know, we, we gave everyone their Jersey and, and I said, I want you to tell everyone in this room, you know, we locked the doors, no one, no one from the hotel in or out. Uh, I want you to tell everyone in this room, something that only a handful of people know about you. Maybe no one knows it about you. 
and, you know, set the expectations. If anything leaves this room, you're off the team straight away. This is for us and these, these stories don't go anywhere. And I went first as the head coach because that's how you lead as a coach. I'll share my vulnerable story first. And then one by one, everyone got up and shared their story. And the, the best way I've found to describe what happened was that the next day on the bus to training, everyone was sitting next to someone new. Mm. They, they knew something different about their teammates that bonded them as human beings. And rather than sitting with the Vancouver guys in their corner and the Toronto guys in their corner, now the guys that also had anxiety or also had this struggle or also, you know, had came from a single mother environment, they were interested in talking to each other on the bus and sitting next to each other on the bus, the training. And so, you know, we were talking beforehand about how, you know, I, I write a lot about it's the other stuff away from the X's and O's that, that it, I think is really important. And, and that's why, because I've seen what that work does to the X's and O's. And I've seen the way that, it, you know, teams get better strategically and tactically when they care about each other versus when they don't. And so that, for me, that was the, probably the best thing. No, not probably. Far and away the best thing we ever did. And the, the 30 guys that were in that room will probably mirror that story that it's the best thing they've done in their sporting career. And we didn't, we didn't win at the end of it. We, I think we won two or three of our five games. We didn't win a trophy. We didn't come home with some big thing. But there was this feeling that came out of that team and this brotherhood that came out of it that was worth way more than that. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, um, you know, so I've read, I forget which Phil Jackson book I've read. But in a copycat world, for example, that is, you know, pro sport, high-end sport, it begs the question, like, how, how is no one, you can't all of a sudden wake up and decide you're Phil Jackson, right? Like, he, he kind of <laughs> was created in a, in a certain way that was uniquely him, mm-hmm. but something similar. And when you think of sport, it's so fast, at least for I'll speak for hockey, it's so fast, it transcends language, it's a feeling, right? Like there's a, there's a certain feeling in sport when you see a club that's been together, that's a high-end team, that they walk on the ice, that they, they see right through the other club, that they, they know they have a game before them, but they, they, they just flat out know and feel they're better than the other team. And, and it's, the, the game's already happened. Now they've just got to do it, right? right? And you, you see this energy, right? I, I saw it, uh, I think it was Tampa Bay, Kucherov's first goal, first game back, he scored this one-time goal and Hedman had the puck at the top and it was like, you know, Kucherov went from like being covered. Hedman had the, you know, the puck on his stick and immediately like as a player, you knew, Oh, it's a goal. It's, it's it, it, it before it even happened. Yeah. And similar to when you're particularly close with, with teammates and that bond is there. Like it doesn't show up in the words used. It, it, it shows up in the energy of the room, in the energy of the bus. There's a certain way the shoulders sit. There's a certain uh, closeness when guys talk to each other that they're not they're not doing like the the dog sniffing each other's asses the ego thing that goes on in a lot of locker rooms mm-hmm. um, and I don't know it's something that as a player you're always evaluating you're evaluating everything all the time you're evaluating your teammates you're evaluating ah, I would do this differently if I was the coach if I was the manager I'd do this um, but when I hear a story like the one you just mentioned it to me it ties in like we have to achieve success of some sort that's what we're all about here wins and losses are the obvious ones it's extremely easy to i guess chart where we're at if we're honest you know amongst uh, the ownership group and the gm and all the things that the head coach kind of has to answer to but that's where in sport i wish that there were more i had more experiences like that and i can't say i've had plenty of them. I haven't had a lot of them. And it's amazing because we spend an extraordinary amount of time together as athletes, like as, as hockey players. I mean, you get one day off a week. We're there constantly. We're traveling constantly, especially this year. Like we were playing a hockey game every 40 hours. Right. Um, you know, and not seeing anybody and not going outside the hotel room, 
you know, thank God I had a, I had a, you know, family at home. Uh, you know, I feel for the single guys where it was pretty much either their teammates at the rink or an Xbox at home to, to, to bond with. Um, and I don't know, I think it's, and I, I think a lot of coaches have it in them. I think they, if you ask them, do you want your team to be really close? They do. I just don't know how purposeful or calculated we are to make sure to, to absolutely make sure that that happens. Right now, totally. I'll, I'll give a story. I actually, I actually wanted to bring it up in my exit interview. I just had, you know, exit interview with the Devils and stuff, and I, I, I hadn't mentioned it, but Lindy Ruff, you know, had been. He he announces at the beginning of training camp. He goes, "This is my forty first NHL training camp." You're like forty one. That's unbelievable. And, you know, guy's been around, you know, forever. And he told us this story about it was a very personal story, and I guess it's his. So I, I won't necessarily share it, but it was it involved some heavy topics, you know, life and death and gratitude to play the game. And mm-hmm. I remember leaving that day, right? Like as a coach, you talked about the core part at the core of every person. They want to be liked to some extent or at least respected, yep. right? At a minimum. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, after Lindy had shown and the perspective that I appreciate, not only out of a, out of a coach, but out of an elder, Right? Like as a young man, you look to uh, an older man or, or woman in, in your sport to provide that sort of leadership, that mentorship. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't shy away from it by sharing this story. And I remember thinking to myself, leaving that day, I'm like, he's got more leash in my mind than he did before the meeting. Period. And, you know, there were times I felt I was, you know, mistreated or could have played more or should have been communicated with, whatever. But he already had gained leash with me. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly from that day. And it, it's not, you know, like you said, it doesn't need to be some, you know, highly thought out, um, you know, corporate uh, team building event. It's, hey, what's something no one else knows about you? Like what's something you know, that you hold close to the chest that you'd be nervous about if other people knew? And it can be mm-hmm. a highlight too, right? Traumas can be good and bad. What's the, what's, you know, what's the thing you're most proud of in your entire career? Because you learn a lot about a person like that too, right? Maybe a little bit less uh, daunting, you know, uh, in terms of entry level. But thanks for sharing that. I think that that's, um, that's something I'll pocket for sure in terms of, you know, how, how, if I were to go through this, something I would use. It doesn't, yeah, you, you're exactly right. It doesn't need to be this profound thing of talking about your deepest, darkest secret. You know, I, I went up and presented to the 67s a couple of years ago and, and I said to them, you know, they're about to go on a, on a road trip. They're going to do, you know, Sudbury, Sue and, and someone else in, you know, like two weekends. I'm like, boys, you're going to be on the bus together a lot. I'm like, just go and sit next to someone new and say, tell me why you started playing hockey. And there's going to be this collision of stories there that's going to get to kind of where I got our guys to, where I, oh, my grandpa, you know, he raised me and he just, he loved watching me play. So I kept playing and then I got good. Oh my God, like mine too. Like, tell me about your grandpa. Oh, okay. Well, you know, yada, yada, yada. Now, that, that brings young men, young women, whoever, closer together and it's just this tiny little thing. And, and this is why I'm so big on it is because one of, the, one of the, the framings that I use as a coach is last two minutes in the championship game. That's what gets you over the line. This is what I don't, I don't think we think about enough is we're so stuck in like the strategy and we're planning for the caps and then we're planning for the stars the next day and we're doing this and we're doing that. Overlaid on that needs to be when it gets to game seven of the cup finals in the last two minutes, none of those X's and O's are going to matter because if you've ever played in a championship game of any caliber, you can't hear anything. You almost can't feel anything and you can't remember what's going on because you're so emotionally spent, physically spent, people are yelling stuff. You're just trying to get through and get over the line and whether you care about the person on your team or not starts to shine through. And so this is why this is just 
money in the bank every time you do these little, have these little conversations, understand human beings. That's the stuff that shows up in the last two minutes, not your pretty little cross pass across the ice to this guy, you know, that looks great on the whiteboard. Man, if you can pull that off in the last two minutes of, of game seven, uh, kudos to you, but I, I don't think so. I, I haven't seen it happen yet in any level of any sport. So that's why I think it's worthwhile spending just a little bit of time doing this kind of stuff. Well, what always intrigued me about, like, for example, in hockey, the Stanley Cups are our big trophy. And so every club, you know, like you said, comes in and, and wants to win that, right? And I wrote down while you were talking, it was like, you know, le- what, what is a leader versus a boss, right? Mm. And I think most coaches would, if given the language, would rather identify as a leader versus a boss, right? Like you want the respect of your players. You want them to want to go through a wall for you. And, and leaders, you know, by definition, kind of serve, you know, who they're working for, who's working for them. It's this mutual sort of um, exchange. And it all, when you think of all the games that are played each and every year, all the sweat, all the tears, the broken bones, the block shots, you know, how is it so that at the end of the season, when it's all been played, the season's over, how does one group feel successful? How does one group have a, a, a take-home bag, you know, a party favor? And so, you know, to go back to the, the experience of everyone sharing that in the room, and, and just from a forward-thinking perspective, you talk to any player, even if they've won when they're retired, you know, what is it you miss most? What is it you treasure most? It is the relationships. Like, why is that overlooked? Why is that just a sidebar? Oh, it'll come from all the hard work. It'll come from the practices, which it does. It'll come from the wins and losses, which it does. But how can we, how can we, you know, if, if the grass grows where we water it, how much water are we allotting to that? Totally. It's funny, isn't it? Because we, again, there's a dishonesty here in that we say we're doing everything possible to elicit performance and to build culture and to strengthen bonds. And we're not really, we're chasing the next win because that gets us another game. And then if we do well enough this season, it gets us a contract renewal. And so, you know, I, that's one of the things I, I think I really want to call out and have called out with, <laughs> with the book that I've written is there's a dishonesty there that we need to address. We're not doing everything to elicit performance out of either our athletes or our coaches or the organization. We're doing the things we want to do. And that's why you see these teams that continually rise to the top and get used as case studies, the Spurs and the Seahawks and the Warriors. That's why they keep showing up year after year uh, because they do this uncomfortable work. They prioritize their culture they eliminate players that don't want to be a part of that culture and that's fine too right like if it's not for you like we'll find a trade for you we'll we'll find a way for you out of here but um teams aren't genuinely doing everything that they could do they're just trying to train more and again i mentioned earlier throw more resources at it and you know I had a conversation with an NBA coach the other day and he's like, I asked him what percentage of the, of the same game plans would each team use? And he goes about 90 to 95%. So who, who wins out in that battle? The most talented teams who have the best player, who have LeBron James, who have James Harden, because everyone's running the same stuff. And so what else are you doing? Where, you know, if, if you're trying to convince everyone that you're trying to create competitive advantage, why are you running 95% of the same stuff as everyone else? <laughs> why, why are you doing something else? It might be culture. Almost it by might- definition, you're making yourself disposable to the owner. <laughs> you know, it's exactly. like, well, we run 90% of what everyone else is doing uh, and probably sold the next guy. So totally. 
And and don't get me wrong, I, I know the circumstances behind this. I know that fear comes into it. Mm-hmm. I know that we we go back to our norms and that uh, I, I get it. Again, I, I've I've kind of written the book about it, so I, I understand the dynamic. But if we want to say that we are genuinely trying to create competitive advantage for our team, we should start to look at you know the how slowly uh, mental performance has taken off in a lot of sports. People think it's reached critical mass, hasn't even started yet. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so talking either. about- I agree with you. Yeah. I, you know, nutrition, again, you hear a couple of things because LeBron did it or whatever, and everyone thinks everyone's got it. Not the case. Sleep, not the case. You know, <laughs> optimizing coaches, not the case. Culture, still, I don't know, maybe here, maybe there, could be better, right? These are the things that really uh, are going to drive performance to the next level. So- yeah, if you're not doing it already and you're listening, spend some time on it. <laughs> Do it intentionally. I love that. I love that, Cody. I want to be respectful of your time this morning. Well, I guess it's afternoon up where you're at. Um, this is outstanding, profound for me. I think uh, great insight in terms of what you know my coaches uh, around the league are going through, and and you know something I wrote down. Um, you know that reminded me a little bit of what. And, I, and hopefully this gives this gives this to our listeners, whether they're athlete, coach, uh, you know, parent uh, to an athlete or a coach, is give them permission. This is daunting stuff if you're not into it. Uh, if you haven't been this reflective, it can it can look it can feel heavy at first. Um, but hopefully, you know, you're able to give uh, permission as as you know clearly uh, a leader in your industry uh, for others to start to creatively reflect, start to evaluate. You know where. What experience do I want? What experience can I foster for my players? What experience do I want as an athlete? How can I, um, you know, bring more of myself and less of a projection, you know, to the rink every day? You know, I get it. A lot of times as players, we want to fit into roles, um, you know, but to define is to limit Oscar Wilde. And I don't know if it's true, but it feels true. Um, You know, so I think that... uh, if we can continue to grow, I guess, with what can't be seen just on video, um, we know what it looks like. We, it's just not always uh, super easy to create. You know, I think of you know the Bulls back in the day, uh, what the Lightnings had, um, you know, what changed in Washington from when they weren't able to win to when they were. How does, I remember I, I had a friend that uh, was playing for the Vegas Golden Knights, you know, who kind of had all the used toys from around the league, good players, don't get me wrong, but, you know, considered fringe a lot of places, which is why they were exposed. Mm. And I remember talking to him, like, you know, what's in the water there, man? You guys went to the Stanley Cup final in your first year. He goes, oh, man, if you're playing scared, that was a huge problem for you. Like, if, if, if you were playing scared, that was the, that was the only way you are going to get cut right into. Um, mm. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, I think 70% of the league plays terrified. What a, what a competitive advantage, to use that word. Um, so anyway, any, uh, closing thoughts and, and follow up on where people can find you further, Cody? Well, I just wanted to say thanks for having me on, man. I've enjoyed following along with what you're doing and I've told you this, uh, you, you know, via message, but uh, I think it's incredibly, uh, brave and just, it's just fascinating to hear someone go through their performance journey out loud. And so, uh, I know you've kind of had to put yourself out there a little bit, so I just want to say thank you for doing that. And obviously thank you for having me on. And yeah, man, I mean, really this conversation and everything that I've shared is, is around generating more conversations. Let's talk more about this. Let's talk more about coach player relationships. Let's talk more about how we can maybe remove some of the, the emotional toll or the toll on, on coaches so that they can coach our players better. Like that's the end result is, is better coaching. So let's talk more about how we can make that a reality. And so, yeah, I agree with you in terms of, you know, defining it and trying to say like, this is the way is limiting. So let's not do that, but let's open up the conversation and, and start to have them and, and negotiate with each other about what that looks like. So, uh, yeah, man, I'm really easy to find codyroyal.com with a name like Cody Royal. I've got all the social media handles. I, I don't have to compete with anyone. Unlike, you know, John Smith who has to have underscore four, seven, two, nine, three. 
um, just Cody Royal on all social media and then all my books and get in touch with me at codyroyal.com. Awesome. Awesome. Cody, this was a pleasure. Thank you to uh, Meg Popovic as well for uh, introducing us. It's been um, a growthful relationship for me too. So I really appreciate it. And you know what? So, not to be understated. I've, I've been doing the podcast now. I think it's over a year and I, I do. I still get a little sweaty with each of them every, every time, uh, you know, I get that end of the diving board sort of feeling, um, you know, but, uh, is that what that water, it's a lot of fun. is that what that water is in the background or is that the water feature that you've, you've added? In no, the, that's, uh, that's out in, uh, that's just the decor at, at grandma's place here in Scottsdale. I figured <laughs> there were two options this morning, either deal with the consistent fountain or given this is a road game for me, uh, the Comcast guy was showing up at apparently at, at 10 o'clock on the dime. Um, and I, I didn't want to deal with him. So we had, we had some birds chirping. Um, I liked it. Hey, you do the best with what you can. Hopefully it brought a, a, a Zen feel to it. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to try it on my podcast next. I'll do it out on the, the balcony overlooking the CN Tower in Toronto and see how we go with background noise. And just, <laughs> just wait and see uh, how the taxis announce themselves and honking and all that. <laughs> I shed the dog. The dog's at home. He's usually good for one or two fuck-ups, frankly. Um, come running in the door and that kind of thing. So, you know, I have progress, not perfect. That's what, that was my goal today. So I was, I was in a little bit of a... Uh, podcast slump there for a bit with the end of the season and I'm, I'm back on my feet now. So exciting and, and get back rolling. You know, how it is. We've talked about this. We have. Yeah, man. I know what you mean. So, yeah. Thanks for having me on brother. I really appreciate it. You. It's always great to chat to you and, and I learn as much from you as, uh, as anything that I've passed on. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs>